This episode of Fantasy Life is brought to you by Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's finger licking good. Make the whole squad happy on game day with a 12-piece tenders meal from KFC. The KFC 12-piece tender meal features 12 extra crispy tenders, six fluffy biscuits, three sides of your choice, and of course, dipping sauce. KFC's homestyle side options include new secret recipe fries, mac and cheese, coleslaw, mashed potatoes, and more. Order now on the KFC app or at KFC.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome to another edition of the Fantasy Life Podcast presented by KFC. I am Marcus Grant. I am joined by Dwayne McFarland. We got a great show for you lined up today. But Dwayne, week one officially in the books. I always want to say it's a wild week, but it's always a wild week. But for you watching this, uh, anything that you you took away just kind of top level from what you saw in week one? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of these teams were not ready to play football yet in the first half. And then all of a sudden they were and the games got really good in the second half. Like the witching hour truly did come alive. Uh, It was one of those kind of weeks. But, um, you know, nothing like just that came at me that I was like, Oh my God, like I just never would have expected that. Obviously there's some players like that we're going to, that we're going to talk about, but just like at an overarching level, um, I thought, you know, it was a pretty tame week one, to be honest. I, you know, I, I had the old man yells at cloud moment on Sunday where I was like, you know, maybe starters should play during the preseason a little bit, just because as you mentioned, the first half of games felt kind of sloppy. And then after halftime, you know, I don't know if there was you know, some, some readjustments or some you know, mental, mental adjustments in locker rooms, but things looked a lot better uh, in the second half for sure. Uh, we got plenty to talk about on the show. Of course, Dwayne just pulling himself out of the bunker where he writes the utilization report. We'll dive into some of his takeaways from that. We'll get into some waiver wire options for the week as well. Plus, looking at some of the overperformers and underperformers that we saw in week one and uh, let you know whether or not you should be panicked about some of these guys or whether or not it just happens to be a speed bump that we saw one week. But let's start in Dallas, where the big news of the week is Dak Prescott. Uh, He is going to have hand surgery, expected to miss multiple weeks. He suffered the injury in the loss on Sunday night to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Obviously, this is a huge blow for the Cowboys. It's a huge blow for fantasy, Dwayne. You and I talked last week about a guy like C.D. Lamb, about Dalton Schultz, what their expectations are. Now, I would imagine you have to severely downgrade both these guys with Dak on the shelf for an extended period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, here's the thing I will say, like with with Cooper Rush, like he just needs to be not terrible. Like that's typically from a fantasy perspective. Um what we want to avoid are just really the, that bottom three or four quarterback in the league, you know, and sometimes we don't have that many in the league in a year. Um, you know, so if Cooper rush can at least just be serviceable, he can probably support lamb and Schultz. Right. And now if you want him to support three or four guys, it's not going to be possible, but to your point, like the ceiling, right? The ceiling is different. And we'll, and we care a lot about ceilings in fantasy football. And whenever you take Dak out of, you know, the offense, we know that they're probably going to try to be a little more conservative. They're going to run the ball more. If they can manage game scripts, that's something they're going to try to do. They could also slow things down. One of the beauties of uh, the Dallas Cowboys offense really over the last two years, they run a lot of plays, Marcus. So even if they're having kind of a bad game, like you're still going to typically get volume out of two or three players. Once you introduce a backup quarterback into that situation, that can be problematic. I will say specifically, you know, with Lamb, 
Um, we did see in week eight last year, if you're into small sample size, you know, against the Vikings, we saw Cooper Rush out there for Dak Prescott. He missed that game. I believe it was a calf injury, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and you actually did have Lamb come through with 17 fantasy points. So you're saying there's a chance like, uh, you know, but to your point, yeah, you're going to lower the ceiling. Um, I, I would really look at him as being, you know, Lamb, I think now where we were thinking of, of him is like, is he on the, he's on the cusp, right. Of trying to become one of those top six wide receivers. Now I think you just got to really look at him as that middle of the road wide receiver too. And we're going to have to reassess, you know, after next week, knowing that the floor could really be wide receiver three, wide receiver four, any given week. And your ceiling probably is not in the top three anymore, but you know, Lamb did look good. Like Lamb was really, I mean, his utilization was great. I should put it that way. Out there, 98% of the routes last year was his, uh, he was at 76% because they had a big rotation. So just by being on the field more, like we talked about, like he was going to be more involved, 26% target share. I still expect, right, that it's really going to be him and Dalton Schultz being the most heavily targeted uh, players. It's just, what is a target from Cooper Cup worth, or sorry, Cooper Cup? (laughs) Jesus, I have been in the bunker from Cooper Rush. From Cooper Rush, right, versus what is a target worth that from Dak Prescott? Like, there's a difference, right, in those two things. If it makes you feel any better, I'm pretty sure a lot of folks are going to mistakenly call Cooper Rush Cooper Cup uh, over the next couple of weeks until we, we kind of get it all straight. You talk about the Cowboys maybe pivoting to the run game a little bit more to, to take some of the pressure off of Cooper Rush. Uh Zeke looked good in the opportunities he had. Unfortunately, it got to a point where they had to sort of abandon the run. But when you look at this now, who benefits the most in the backfield? Is it Zeke? Is it Tony Pollard? Is it neither? Where do you where do you go? Honestly, um, you know, I worry about both players. Like so for Zeke, the challenge is right now, given the role that we're seeing him play. Like he needs to be on the field inside the five yard line with a chance to score touchdowns. And we know that the opportunity for that is now going to go down without Dak Prescott around. However, at the same time, like it was just tough to get my arms even around Tony Pollard, like coming off of all that hype that we talked about in the in the preseason about, oh, he's going to play in the slot. He's going to play wide receiver. Guess what, folks? He was in a route from the slot five whole times. That's why we you know, I don't mean to poo poo things like this, but we just historically, we don't see these running backs get to work enough, you know, as receivers to really ultimately move the needle much for us as fantasy players. What we needed for Pollard was really to see him take over the two minute offense. And there was a lot of talk about that in training camp. A lot of the beat reporters were like, Oh, seeing Pollard out here in the two minute Pollard's on the field in the two minute. Well, in the first game, they, they split it 45% um, of the long down and distance work went to Zeke 55% to Pollard. So that those are obvious passing plays. And then the two minute offense was also split 50, 50 Pollard only handled 32% of the rushing attempts. So he's really like a, you know, he's an upside RB three, like you can put him in your flex, but it's still scary. And with Cooper rush, it's just a challenge, you know, I mean, they're, they're going to score less points. So that hurts running backs a lot. Well, we will find out a whole lot coming up in week two with the Cowboys taking on the Bengals. I'm sure everybody's going to take kind of a a wait-and-see attitude uh, and kind of figure out what moves we're going to make from there. All right, I mentioned Dwayne in the bunker. Uh, Going through the utilization report, it is a beast of a piece of content. You should definitely check it out when and where you get the chance. But uh, let's let's sort of dive into this a little bit because there were obviously a lot of takeaways from week one. Top of the list, we spent a good part of the offseason debating if Cooper Cup, I almost said Cooper Rush, if Cooper Cup or <laughs> good Justin catch, good Jefferson. Good catch, I heard the gears right? turning. I heard right? the gears turning. If Cooper Cup or Justin Jefferson should be the wide receiver one, and I guess the answer was yes. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, when you see how these guys were used, look, I know it's not a surprise that both of them got a, a big target share from their respective quarterbacks, but was there anything really that stood out with how they were used by their offenses in the first week? Yeah, we expected them to both be, both be really good, like you mentioned. Um, you know, for Cooper Cup, it's just more of what we've seen. You know, Sean McVay does an amazing job of scheming things up for Cup, where he gets a lot of matchups against linebackers, against safety. Some of that comes from being aligned in the slot. Uh, some of that comes from the different route combinations that they use whenever they know they get a certain look from a defense. And he and, you know, Stafford, you know, we've got the, brec the breakfast and lunch narrative, all those things. Um, you know, they're, they're simpatico, right? They're definitely hand-in-glove kind of situation. So most people know that, right, around Cup. But Justin Jefferson, we have Kevin O'Connell come over to the Vikings, you know, from the Rams. And there was a lot of speculation that is Cooper Cup really going to now be the slot receiver, right? Is he going to be the guy that's going to be um, getting all the Cooper Cup looks, if you will? And just to be clear, folks, uh, Justin Jefferson doesn't need Cooper Cup looks. He can line up anywhere and just dominate anyone. But to answer the question, yes, he did. And it, what was interesting is it wasn't just by moving him into the slot. You do not have to have a player in the slot to help create all of these matchup nightmares. And if you look at Justin Jefferson, what I thought was the most interesting. Now, this is one game. This is one game. That's, all, that's what's so fun about the week one utilization report. I actually went back and read last year's week one. And there was a lot of things that were right. And it was really cool. And there were some things like, like oh, that was cute. Um, but looking at, <laughs> looking at Jefferson, um, last season, only 24% of his targets came with a linebacker or safety in primary coverage. Thank you, PFF. Awesome data. And on week one, six of his 10 targets came with linebackers or safeties in primary coverage by the way that they set it up with the scheme. Those six targets went for five receptions, 148 yards, and two touchdowns. So that's a very positive thing for Justin Jefferson. Before, a lot of times, really just asked to be an outside receiver, line up, take on cornerbacks. Now you have a coach. We've seen it in week one. He's just moving this guy all over the place, Marcus, and he's doing everything he can to make him the absolute centerpiece of the offense. I think that's the other thing we saw. Um, Thielen probably still going to have some decent weeks, but this is it really reminded me of Stafford and Cup. It reminded me of, well, yep, that play's designed for Justin Jefferson. That play's designed for Justin Jefferson. Oh, there's another one designed for Justin Jefferson. It's not really a bad idea either. Not a bad idea at all either. He certainly took advantage of the Packers secondary. There were times he caught the football and there were no Packers uh, within the same area code as Justin Jefferson. So, uh, you know, he's spent the offseason saying he understands now why Cooper Cup is so open all the time. I know Adam Thielen said after the game, <clears throat> excuse me, that he loves playing in an offense that loves to attack all the time. And look, even if they weren't necessarily attacking with Adam Thielen, they are going to be more aggressive, it looks like, in pushing the football downfield. That's going to be great news for anybody who, who decided to take Jefferson, maybe even at the 1.01, because I saw that a few times this offseason. As for Cooper Cup, as you mentioned, it's sort of business as usual. Um, you know, Cooper Cup doing Cooper Cup things. We saw him have a big day against the Bills even in situations where everybody knew he was going to get the football. So uh, if you were debating whether to take Cup or Jefferson, it feels like after one week that there was no wrong answer uh, to, to the question on that one. Wanted to ask you about A.J. Brown because we were sort of curious, I guess, what he was going to do in Philadelphia. I certainly liked his prospects. I think a lot of people did. And a great start for him. Ten catches, 155 yards. Uh, had that one deep catch where he was dragging people like a backpack uh, down the field for a few yards before they finally targeted him. 
but it seemed to come at the expense of everybody else. I mean, there was really no one else to, to speak of in that passing game for the Eagles. Is it always going to be like this? Can can Philadelphia sustain more than just A.J. Brown with their, their passing volume? Yeah, so just a couple things real quick. Like, you know, this was just a reminder of how good A.J. Brown really is. Like, we, we've just had A.J. Brown. We've been so used to seeing A.J. Brown in a true run-first offense. Like, when I say run-first, like, as run-first as it gets, folks, um, <laughs> outside of also having a running quarterback, right? Those are typically the most rush-heavy offenses. So with Tennessee, though, it was really, let's slow the game down. Let's run the clock out. We're not going to throw the ball a lot. And so even though A.J. Brown, like, he did all he could, right? So he would see 25 30% target shares, targets per route run in the 29 30% range, like the best receivers in the league, but it never would truly add up because there just weren't enough, you know, passing attempts to go around. But, like, when you look at his talent profile, like, versus man coverage, zone coverage, doesn't matter. A.J. Brown is a top five or top five wide receiver talent in the league, and so it was really great, like, just to see him kind of get, to your point, like, unleashed. As far as, you know, the, the the second thing, you know, looking at the Eagles, I think the biggest question that I had going in, you know, this weekend was really, okay, well, which Eagles are we going to see, Marcus? Are we going to see the one that over the first four weeks last year were really pass heavy? Or were we going to see the offense that shut it down kind of after that and just said, you know what, we're going to kind of limit mistakes. We've got a good offensive line. We're just going to run the ball. And what we saw was kind of in between this first week, but there were some really positive signs. Number one, when the Eagles were leading by four points or more this weekend, they threw the ball 10 percentage points above what the normal NFL average is. That means they were keeping the pedal just completely floored. Again, small sample size alert, folks. Like we'll, we'll, we'll keep updating you on these things as we have it more. All we have today is week one, and we're all super jacked and excited to be able to talk about it. But it's all we have, so it was very positive. So out of the gate, it does look like this team, when they went and got A.J. Brown, they were truly showing their intentions. Drafted Devonta Smith in the first round last year. Dallas Goddard, obviously, already on the team. It does appear that they're ready to probably be pass heavy again this year or at least somewhere in between where I don't think we're going to see that super run heavy squad that we saw at the end of last year. So at a minimum, I think we avoid that. And then the third thing, so that's where we should see more passing volume. And then the third thing is I think even though we have these guys battling it out, as long as they continue to throw the ball more, we know Devonta Smith is still a good player. Folks, like, you know, he's a guy you should be holding. You definitely don't want to just drop Devonta Smith. Like, he checked a ton of breakout boxes as a rookie, first-round pick, out of Alabama. You know, what he did last year from a target standpoint, yards per route run, all the kind of stuff that I'm typically looking at for breakouts. Like, Devonta Smith, it was like, check, 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 check. All these things were good. And then Dallas Goddard, right? It's really, that's who it's going to be split up between is those three guys. Now, this last weekend, we saw Kenneth Gainwell get involved. Um, but not something we're going to see every week. I mean, Kenneth Gainwell was only on the field for 23% of the passing plays and he ended up with a 17% target share, right? So that's not sustainable. That's not going to happen all the time. It's just something that was going on with the defense um, that they were just giving them the right look at the right time. And that really got Gainwell involved. But I think typically it's going to be pretty consolidated to those three guys who are all really good talents. And as long as they're throwing the ball the way we saw on Sunday, I think that they can all survive. In that respect, I think there is definitely a silver lining for us fantasy-wise because we enjoy offenses where you know the targets are going to be funneled among a small handful of guys. And, and if we know it's primarily going to be uh, A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, and Dallas Goddard, I think we can feel pretty confident in that. The other part of this that sort of encourages me is all the talk in the offseason of Jalen Hurts really working to develop himself as a passer. That was one of the big question marks we had coming into the season. We knew, obviously, that he could run the football. We knew he was still sort of raw and trying to figure things out. But if he really is 
refining that part of his game, uh, then I think that makes you feel better because then you know you can talk about you know, Brown or whomever getting a volume of targets. But if he can, if they can get efficient targets, that is probably going to be even more useful for us throughout the season. It's one thing to have a bunch of targets come your way, but if they're sprayed all over the place and it's hard for you to actually you know catch the football and run with it, um, you know, then I think you sort of have to kind of reevaluate there. But through one week, I think we're we're I think it could be both, right? I think it could be both for the Eagles. Uh, Like a a couple of really good things. So like play action targets are worth more than normal targets. You typically just get more yards after the catch. You get more fantasy points per target. Uh, 45% of A.J. Brown's targets came on play action this weekend. Now, Devonta Smith was not targeted uh, often, but he was also very involved in the play action game when he was. Dallas Goddard, 33% of his targets came off of play action. So it's like the Eagles have kind of taken that mentality they had at the end of the year, which is, hey, we're this really good running team, and now they know teams have to respect it. Well, teams have to respect it no matter what. Linebackers have to, you know, fill their fit. So it doesn't matter. They're going to always have to fill, you know, if you're if you're running play action. But it's like the Eagles have found out that we could use this really to our advantage. It was something they didn't quite do enough of last year. So I was really excited to see them really ramp up the play action game. And that adds to what you were just talking about on the efficiency side of things. And so, yeah, AJ Brown, 46% target share this weekend. Like, I'm just like, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. 77% of the team's air yards. I mean, it won't be like that every week. I think these other guys will be okay. I, I do think they're going to get involved. But, yeah, that's that's an insane number for both the target share and the uh, the air yard share there. Uh, since we're talking about teams running the football, let's let's take a peek at some of these backfields because there were a number of them that you know, we we wanted to see how things were going to go in the first week starting in Houston where you know, the Damian Pierce the, we we created sort of a Frankenstein's monster I think with Damian Pierce with his ADP just getting really out of control to the point that I think a lot of fantasy managers out there felt they had to start him in week one because they spent decent draft capital on him only to see Rex Burkhead get the lion's share of the opportunity in the backfield in week one. So now, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are a little bit salty uh, because they feel like they were sold a bill of goods. But as you look at this, is this a sustainable thing? Because for all of the work that Rex Burkhead got, he wasn't very efficient with it. Is this just sort of an early season thing? Or is there something here that, that we need to be concerned about? Well, I think for the immediate term, it's obviously something we're concerned about. We don't want Damian Pierce in our lineup. Um, you know, what was the most troubling to me, Marcus, was just the fact that, you know, the Texans, they dropped back to pass four percentage points above expectation, like based on the way the game script and everything worked. So they were really, you know, going pass heavy, despite the fact that they were leading pretty much all the time. So we kind of thought Damian Pierce, his role was going to be, all right, if the Texans can get a lead, which we didn't know, how many of those could they get in the year? Uh, I I don't know. Maybe they could lead on 20% of snaps, 15%. That would be great. But in those scenarios, Damian Pierce would be the dude. He would be the early down guy. We kind of figured Rex Burkhead would be involved in the passing game. The problem was is that you know Houston came out and just said, one, we're going to be a pass-heavy team, period. And then number two, even when we're just going to run the ball in between the tackles, when we're leading, we're just going to leave Rex Burkhead on the field. Like That was the head-scratcher to me. I was like, I kind of thought they had built this tandem. It does make me wonder, and again, I have no clue about this, complete speculation, but did something happen? Did he miss a curfew? Did... It's just was it was really odd. It was out of left field because this is a guy that they... And look, preseason, I know, can be mixed signal, signals, but... When you give a guy rest in a game, right, and you made Rex Burkhead play, 
That that told me they really valued him. Then they come out and actually name him the starter. Then they follow that up in the preseason and they actually use him like a starter, play Rex Burkhead behind him. Then after that, they again say, Damian Pierce is our starter. It's almost like, did it go to his head? Like, oh, I'm the starter and something happened. I, I On Rex Burkhead, like, you know, putting out the utilization report and, and, you know, advising people on how much to put on fab and things like that. His utilization looks great, man. 71% of the snaps. 52% of the rushing attempts, 67% of the routes. If you were to just cover his name, I'm going to do it right now, putting my thumb over my screen, and I didn't know that name said Rex Burkhead, I'd be like, all my fab money, all my fab money. Like, I'm just going to put it all down. <laughs> but I know the name's Rex Burkhead. And I just kind of wonder, man, like, is there something going on behind the scenes? And we see these things happen. So I only said put like 5% on the guy. You know, I know the utilization looks great, but he's also 32 years old. So what if they are serious about this? His body can't hold up to this. Rex Burkhead cannot. He can't. He can't handle an every down workload. This could ultimately work out good for Damian Pierce. Sorry, Rex. We love you. Love your family. Do not want you to be hurt. But for Damian Pierce truthers, I know all you really care about is yourself. So I'm going to give you the you know the truth here, which is Rex Burkhead can't hold up to that. And if he gets hurt, it's just maybe that's just all of a sudden it's all Damian Pierce. I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I mean, I I feel that way, too. Like, So here's the thing. I came into the season early in draft season. I felt like Damian Pierce was a value because of the potential opportunity, because, look, Rex Burkhead is a nice piece, but he has always sort of been an insurance policy and all the other offenses he's been in. He's never really been the guy. And. If that was great when I was drafting Damian Pierce in round 12, 13, or what have you. Then the ADP started to go up. The hype started to go with it. You talk about him being considered the starter there in Houston. And then I think things sort of started to change a little bit. But I still don't believe, one, because of Burkhead's history, because of, as you mentioned, you know whether or not he can hold up to that sort of workload over the course of a full season – And to me, the other part of it is this Texans team, they don't have expectations attached to them. Uh, You know, they I know they had a chance to win that game. They end up getting the tie uh, to start the season. But this is a team that's not going to be in contention. Why would you, in that case, roll with a 32 year old veteran back? Uh, who's mostly been a complimentary player for his career when you have a rookie that you you can at least showcase and see what you have there. So I also felt like those things were working in Pierce's favor. So I I look at what happened on Sunday and I see this as, look, this seems like a short-term thing to me. Like we're going to work Rex Burkhead in. We're going to let kind of Pierce sort of ease his way in. But I feel like if we're still having this, if we're still having this conversation in, you know, the middle of October, uh, then I think there's really a problem. But I feel like after you know the first few weeks of the season, I think we're going to start to see this flip the other way. So I, I'm, quite, I'm kind of with you on folks who have Damian Pierce. I wouldn't panic just yet. I understand your frustration in week one, but I think this is more of a temporary thing and not the future uh, in Houston. Uh, over in Green Bay, A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones were both considered 1A running backs. And if you look at their usage in week one, that sort of bared out. They were both on the field a lot for the Packers. Uh, The offense, though, Dwayne, was not particularly great. They struggled to move the football all day. Jones did not give you a really great number. Dillon was a little bit better fantasy-wise. But I would think, you you can tell me if I'm wrong, at least in terms of utilization, it seemed to be a lot of the things we wanted from this backfield. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the snaps were really close and they got on the field together a little bit. Um, 61% to Jones, 51% to AJ Dillon, but Dillon led in the rushing attack, right? He had 56% of the attempts. AJ, uh, Aaron Jones had 28%, but in the passing game, it was Aaron Jones, 65% of the routes, 
37% to AJ Dillon. That worked out where Dillon still out targeted him. Targeted him. He had an 18% uh, target share, but Jones was still healthy. 15% for a running back is really good. Um, and if you look at the targets per route run, though, that's where Dylan kind of blew up 30%. So, and sometimes what happens folks, like looking at them, they're two different players. Aaron Jones is really a guy that's going to be able to, you know, work his way down the field. You know, he's going to be able to match up with linebackers and safeties and occasionally work deep, all those kind of things. Dylan is really more of this swing pass guy, but sometimes, especially when you have receivers that maybe, um, Aaron Rodgers is not used to, right. Or they're still just, you know, they're, couple of these guys are young. Christian Watson was out there a lot. You know, Romeo was out there a lot. So if there's nobody open, guess what you have to do? You have to check it down, you know, to the other guy. And so, yeah, I think the roles have actually shown to be pretty defined. And and the way I would best explain it, think back to when Alvin Kamara really first got into the league. And he wasn't getting 50% of the rushing attempts for his team. He was getting 30%, 35%. But he was really getting all the passing network. And Mark Ingram was really playing this role that we've seen with Dylan. And so I, that's the best comp I can really give you. And so that comp should make you happy. That year, Mark Ingram did really well. He was a top 24 <laughs> running back. Um, Kamara, not saying Aaron Jones is going to do this, but he scored over 300 points in a PPR, right? He was a top four back that year. But I will say, Aaron Jones has never come anywhere close to a 65% route participation. So if you're playing in a PPR league, this is not bad news at all. That makes Aaron Jones a buy low, uh, honestly, for me uh, right now. Dylan is going to be difficult because people are now going to see some of this and they just assume he's past Aaron Jones. So his price tag is going to obviously move up. But I think it's good news for both players. The team told us they want to have both heavily involved. They've shown us that they've thought through a way to do that in a way that fantasy managers can still extract value from both players, which is good news. So Dylan with six targets, Jones with five targets, and Rogers spread the ball around to a whole bunch of different guys on Sunday. Would you expect though we're going to see Jones and Dylan sort of near the top of the target share each and every week? I think Aaron Jones will be. I think Dylan it'll be a little bit more iffy. So if you look at Aaron Jones and kind of how I look at that, you know, what are the obvious passing down situations that we care about most? And that's the two minute offense. When they got into their two minute offense, eighty three percent of the snaps went to Aaron Jones, seventeen percent went to AJ Dylan. That's usually a really good indicator of what the teams are thinking as far as who they really want to be their primary passing down back and who often in the end will end up leading the team in targets. So let's go now to the Jets because you know, there was excitement about Brees Hall there. Uh, Michael Carter played very well for them last year. And so we were trying to figure out what's the division of labor there when you've got, you know, two guys that the team has spent a good amount of draft capital in in the last couple of years. At least for one week, it was a lot more of Carter than it was of Hall. Um, do you see that gap in utilization closing as the season progresses? Yeah, I think, you know, and we've seen this a lot, right? A lot of times it, have to, it happens after a bye week, you know, where you'll see this change a little bit. But it's it's pretty close. Like, I mean, you got 60% to Carter in snaps, 45% to Brees Hall. If you look at their routes, they're equal, 45% and 44%. Uh, the two-minute offense actually went to Brees Hall. Um, so Carter's the guy that we kind of thought of early. In, isn't it funny how these things get turned on their head? They're like, well, you know... Yeah, Michael Carter, he might get some of the passing down role. Brees Hall will probably handle most of the rushing attempts. It was the opposite. Michael Carter had 56% of the rushing attempts. Brees Hall had 33%. But here's the positive, folks. It's positive for both of them. Here's why. They're both dual threat backs. They can both execute on both levels, passing, 
running the ball, um, and they're explosive playmakers. Their targets per route run, exactly the same, 31%. Target share, exactly the same, 16%. Um, the only difference was Carter did get the edge in the rushing attack. So 17 PPR points to Michael Carter, 12.1 to Brees Hall. So even though, yeah, you spent a fourth-round pick on Brees Hall, he still gave you a... And look, that's not winning your game. It's not, it's not winning you, you know, your matchup. But he didn't kill you. And so when I look at Hall, it's a situation where... Yes, as the season goes on, I think you will see him start to take on a little bit more. I, I do have to say, though, Mark, Michael Carter, like every opportunity he's been given, like has played really well. So we we could see this last for a little bit. It's This is a little different scenario because we don't have Brees Hall like pushing like some old dude that we all, we all know is not good anymore, right? That, that's not who he's pushing out. He's actually pushing out a guy that didn't have good draft capital last year as a round four pick, early round four pick but was really good when on the field and now has won the job in training camp. So um, as much as I do think Hall will start to take over that backfield and I would target him, there's still a chance that it just remains this way the whole year because Carter has really played exceptionally well. Do you think Zach Wilson coming back whenever that is, does that, does that change anything in that dynamic there? I think it is potentially bad for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Look, but it could also be good. Here's the thing with Zach Wilson. He's still young. So the, the the range of outcomes can be wide. Remember when everyone thought that Josh Allen, including me, couldn't play football? Right. So, you know, hey, shout out to me. Like I I I just and honestly, like looking back at that, like it was the hugest leap. I, I went back and researched it after it happened. Cause you know when you miss on something, you're like, what was I missing? Why mm-hmm. why did I not see this coming? And then after I did the research, I was like, oh, this is why I didn't see it coming because it never happens. Like what Josh Allen was and then what he transformed into doesn't happen. Like what we might have thought, and he was going to be a good fantasy football asset because he ran the ball, right? So he was always going to be a guy we were thinking about in the top eight quarterbacks. But him transforming into an elite quarterback was really hard to do. You go and you look at Zach Wilson, you look at the comps that he has versus his rookie year. And again, it's one year, so we have to give him a little bit of grace. He was also, he played injured last year. He was hurt. He missed time, but it's not a good comp. It's not a good comp group. So it overall, I get concerned. You know, Joe Flacco did a really nice job yesterday of really integrating all of these backs into the passing game. Um, and honestly, the receivers kind of suffered. They didn't get a lot of it. It was freaking Michael Carter, Brees Hall, and Tyler Conklin <laughs> were, the, were the guys getting all the targets. Yeah, just like we uh, we had it drawn up. Just like we projected. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's gonna. I think it'll be interesting. I, I keep saying this. It's been a couple years in a row. The Jets seem to be intriguing. I'm waiting for them to put it all together. The good news has been the last couple of years in fantasy is that you don't necessarily have to reach to get a lot of their pieces. So that sort of gives you the luxury of kind of picking and choosing where you're playing them. But uh, I still believe, you know, Michael Carter is a good running back who's never going to fully go away, even if Brees Hall does end up taking over the lion's share of the work there uh, in New York. I. Right. Uh, we have hit the point in the week where it is time to sort of talk about waivers, guys that maybe we are buying, selling, holding, whatever your format is. But uh, your roster management, obviously, a big part of what happens week to week. Uh, for you, when you're talking about guys that are free agents that maybe should be added to rosters, any names that jump out at you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Julio Jones is one that uh, I was looking today over on ESPN and I was kind of surprised. Like he's still available quite a bit. Typically if it's a guy like only avail- available on like th- 30% of leagues or something, I won't talk about. 
Um, so usually anybody that I mention here is at least 50%, you know, available. And so with Julio, just looking at what he did this past weekend, you know, he was out there for the, he tied with Mike Evans to lead the team in route participation at 76%. And they kind of took some of the starters off the field at the end of the game, or that number would have actually, you know, been higher. Um, but he was also second on the team with a 19% target share. And he's really just getting to know Brady. Now we know Chris Godwin is likely to miss multiple games due to the hamstring. And then we also have the fact that Russell Gage was dealing with a nagging hamstring injury as well. And the door's just kind of wide open for Julio. And whenever I first started this offseason, Marcus, I was just like, I'm, I'm not messing with Julio, period. I don't care who he signs with. He's 33. And then some, and Adam Harstead, actually, he's a super smart dude from Football Guys. He's like, well, you ought to go back and look at, like, at some of the other, the, the older players beyond like just the last five to 10 years that were receivers. And I did it. And I was like, Terrell Owens was 33 when he did that. I was like, Jerry Rice did that at 33. Tim Brown did that at 33. Like, I just kept going through all these names. I was like, holy crap. And then I started thinking, I was like, does Julio Jones belong on a list with some of those guys? And I think the answer is yes. He's one of, he's one of the best receivers we've seen. And so after looking at that, you know, I decided to keep my mind open to him. And then now here we are with Tom Brady in an attack where, look, right now, I'll, it's going to be hard for me to not rank him in my top 24 wide receivers next week. Yeah, there's just there's so much opportunity there. And just, you know, from the eye test, he looked good when we saw him on Sunday night. I mean, he had that catch where he laid out down the field, was able to pull it in. Uh, I was joking with some folks, though, that, you know, he he does have the old man get up where, you know, he he falls and he, he may always worry. Come on, Julio. You're like, right? rooting him. get up. <laughs> exactly. He'll lay there for a moment. He'll get up real slow and go back to the huddle. And then he, he looks good again. But uh, you're right. I mean, he he played well uh, there's opportunity there you know I keep saying that I feel like having been recruited personally by Tom Brady absolutely means something so uh, I think there's a lot of chance for him to to get some opportunity there so yeah maybe folks who wrote off Julio Jones uh, you know do so at your own peril um what ask I have, about Jeff I, I have I have one other one that's probably oh, yeah, go for available absolutely. everywhere go so for this it. one is just one for everyone Curtis Samuel Mm-hmm. Curtis Samuel was pretty much forgotten. Remember, folks, last year he came over to Washington, signed a big contract. Um, the two years before had really shown like he was a he was on the verge of breaking out, had some major quarterback challenges <laughs> along the way. I don't know. You guys have probably seen some of those clips of Curtis Samuel just wide open and Kyle Allen just like airmailing it, airmailing it, airmailing it. I mean, the guy was just like on the ver- like could have literally had a huge year one of those seasons. And then the next year was kind of this multifaceted weapon, right? That Carolina was moving all over. He was helping take over for McCaffrey, filling in for McCaffrey even. And then he got that contract. Well, last year he got the growing injury and it was basically right out of the gate. I think 6% of the time he was on the field last year. That's how little he played. And so one of the easiest ways to, to, to be able to succeed in fantasy is to find these guys that are still relatively young that you know we've seen promise from in the past. And they just had one injured season. And guess what? People are just done. They're like, I'm not messing with that anymore. I don't have time for that. Because people last year kept hearing he was coming back. They pick him up. Then they got to drop him, pick him up. They got to drop him. But he dominated 26% target share this past weekend on his way to 21.2 PPR points. Um, He was also involved in the rushing attack. 16% of the rushing attempts went to him. They moved him all over the field. They had him in the slot. They had him out wide. They put him in the backfield. They were putting him in motion. And so he's available 90% of ESPN leagues right now. So he's a guy that I would absolutely be be all over because talented profile. Here's the other thing. Washington, they're going to air it out, man. Like looking at the data points from the first game, they were similar to what I talked about with the Eagles. and, And all the way, they were just putting 
you know, the, the, they were just pegging the accelerator to the floor and they're like, we're just going to keep throwing. Doesn't matter if we're leading, doesn't matter if we're trailing. And Carson once, you know, he looked okay. He looked functional. So um, I really like Curtis Samuel, and that's a guy that should be available pretty much everywhere. Yeah, he's available in a lot of places. I, I like a couple things about that. One, everybody kept talking about trying to find a Debo Samuel type player. Debo is one of one, so we should probably just let that idea go. But in terms of sort of being that dual threat guy, Curtis Samuel filled that role. And that was what we liked about him coming out of college was that you know he had been a running back who could catch the football. And now, at least for one week, it looks like Washington is using him as such. The other part that surprised me pleasantly for Washington is we know Terry McLaurin's going to be good. Curtis Samuel was a nice piece. Jahan Dotson, who I know, you know, for a lot of folks, especially in the dynasty set, was uh, very popular. Uh, but but Jahan Dotson looked like looks like he could be a player in this offense as well. Uh, Dwayne, I never thought we'd come into this year saying that that the Washington Commanders have three potentially usable pieces uh, in their wide receiver room. That that I think is a a very positive revelation. Yeah, and they have backs that can catch. You know, so I mean, honestly, uh, we could be. Sitting here in a couple of weeks from now and just being like, wow, these are the best weapons Carson Wentz has ever played with. You know, <laughs> now, I mean, look, he had some decent weapons in the past. He had Ertz, but he never really truly played with like a loaded offense. Alshon Jeffrey was kind of at the end of his career. Nelson Aguilar was like on again, off again, you know, depending on which week or which which season, you know, maybe which minute. I don't know. Seems to be a typical <laughs> thing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, there's a lot of talent here. And sometimes it just takes, you know, some of these guys, you know, they just have these late career renaissance. I was kind of done with Wentz, but, you know, I went back and was watching some of that game. And wow, like I, I put him on the waiver wire on, on the ad. And a lot of it had came back to I just saw how aggressive they were playing. Like they're going to let this guy air it out. Like, and so he could still be Carson Wentz and make a lot of bad plays and still score you a lot of fantasy points just if they're going to run the offense like that. I want to ask you real quick about the San Francisco running back situation. <clears throat> Elijah Mitchell, unfortunately, suffers an injury. He looks like he's going to miss uh, a little bit of time coming up in the next few weeks. Jeff Wilson, I know, is sort of the easy pivot for everybody off the waiver wire. But in terms of, say, taking that long view, any interest in, say, a Jordan Mason or a, a Ty Davis price down the line? Absolutely. That's really the move to make, right? People are going to go drop a ton on Jeff Wilson. And then you're going to turn around <laughs> and actually, as soon as this week, you're going to be like, I spent 30% of my fab on Jeff Wilson and Jordan Mason's out here going off, you know? So that, that's just kind of a move that I've, that I've just learned and mostly probably just to save myself from heartbreak. But with the 49ers backfield, I'm like, well, just who's the other, who's, who's the guy that nobody's talking about down here that's cheaper because Kyle Shanahan, you know, he's so fickle. He's so willing to change and he's so secretive. It's almost like, and he just, it's almost like sometimes you wonder, is it ego? He just wants to prove like nobody's heard of Jordan Mason. I'm going to let him run for a hundred yards. It'll be fun. You know? So yeah, I'm with you. I actually prefer to go for the less known players, just stash them, get them for one to 2%, you know, or if you're just going with a typical waiver system, nobody pays any attention to them. You don't even have to put them into your waivers. You just Go pick them up after waiver run is over. Uh, my friend and colleague Adam Rank years ago coined the term Shanahanigans. Uh, in, at the time, it was in reference to Mike Shanahan and his uh, propensity to use multiple running backs. But I feel like his son has sort of inherited that too with uh, you know just finding guys that maybe nobody's talking about and not only using them, but using them successfully as well. So That was my uh, first article ever in fantasy football that I wrote, and it was called S2K, and it was, and it was really <laughs> around the Shanahan, Shanahan, and Kubiak running schemes because they all ran the same thing. It was in like 2012, I think, for Rotoviz, something like that. 
And it was all about how they would find these backs. Like, you know, and they kind of had two archetypes, but, it, you know, they would they would draft a lot of guys that would never hit, like Lorenzo uh, Taliaferro and, you know, God rest his soul, but uh, a lot of guys like that. But then you would get an Arian Foster, right? You get, you have the Terrell Davis, you got the Mike Anderson, the Olandis Garys, you know, going way back there. Well, and when you hit big on those guys, people forget about, you know, some of the swings and misses maybe you had uh, earlier. Tatum Bell. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, you, I, I mentioned, you know, the utilization report. Again, go check that out uh, when you get the chance. But any guys, I want to ask you maybe for a guy that overperformed and a guy that underperformed based on you know, what your anticipation was and, and how they were utilized this week. So let's let's start with the good. Anybody that really just popped in terms of like overperforming this past week. Yeah, well, I mean, an easy one is Dontrell Hilliard. He just really, and look, I, I do think he's actually the cuff still. So he could have value. The problem is like if you've just got somebody blindly going in, you know, and looking at waivers and, and trying to figure out, and they just look at fantasy points. Like Dontrell Hilliard was hardly on the field at all and scored two touchdowns. So he basically just kind of got lucky. He is the passing down back. But you don't want to overspend. And having said that, again, if you can get him for what he should be going for, I do think he actually is the true. Um, Hassan Haskins is going to be involved, but I think if something did happen to Derrick Henry, and that is an older player with a lot of carries on their body, I do think that Dontrell Hilliard would be a factor. It's just that, you know, you get these guys that do this. They're only out there 20% of the plays, and Kenneth Gainwell kind of did a similar thing. He was out there very little and then scored a lot of fantasy points. Now, that you could obviously argue, well, that shows to their talent. And I agree. The problem is like, can they actually get on the field enough consistently week to week to actually pay off what you're going to use on the waivers? Any surprise that the, I felt like the, the Titans weren't as run heavy as we've seen them in the past in a game that was you know pretty much close throughout. Uh, is there any worry about that? Or is this just, you know, kind of a, I don't know, trying to do something a little bit too tricky this week? It was very interesting because you're right, they were not. So whenever they were lead, whenever they were within three points, so uh, basically a neutral script, they were plus 12% versus the NFL average over the three years and, and drop back rate, which is not the Titans. And you're like, okay, you guys get rid of AJ Brown. Let me get this straight. You get rid of AJ Brown, your best receiver on your team, and you go sign a, a slot receiver, you know, uh, or uh, you draft a slot receiver and Kyle Phillips, you get Traylon Burks, but you're going to leave Traylon Burks mostly on the bench as well. He's only going to play about 30% and you guys are going to air it out. Like, this is the game plan. <laughs> like, this is what we're doing. Like, I, I don't know. It obviously was dictated by something. Maybe, maybe they were coming to the line with run calls and they were just stacking everything and Tannehill's just checking out of it. I don't know, but I saw the same thing in the data. Like, very astute of you, Marcus. Like, uh, yeah, they def definitely throwing the ball more than what we had seen. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. Uh, on the downside, I mean, there are a lot of guys that that underperformed. I mean, you can just go through any of our Twitter mentions, people complaining about guys who uh, who didn't live up to expectations in week one. But uh, was there somebody or some bodies that really kind of stood out in terms of just kind of laying an egg this week? Yeah, well, I mean, we don't, you know, we don't have to, you know, go on with this one too long. Cam Akers, obviously, mm -hmm. right? You know, a guy that we thought would probably, you know, get at least half of, of the work we never would have anticipated. And I don't care. Like I had so many people come to me like, Oh, we've known this forever. I'm like, guys, if everyone knew this forever, you do realize cam makers would have been drafted in round 12 and Darrell right. Henderson would have been drafted in round six. There's this thing called ADP. That's pretty much what the masses think. So stop, right? No, but you're the one guy that knew because you know, your dad knows a reporter or whatever. Anyway. Um, so with acres, obviously 18% of the snaps, only 13% of the rushing attempts. That's terrible. James cook, uh, sad. 
sad to say, you know, you, you were out at the King's classic with me, Marcus, and I actually let um, someone bid up James cook. And I was like, I, I got to get my guy. I got to get my guy. I think I, I think I spent $12 on James cook in the auction. Whoops. Um, yeah. So it was not out there really for the passing down work. He was the third back on the field with Devin Singletary and Zach Moss working ahead of him. Um, and, uh, fumbled. So that's always, that, that's always a tough one. Like, like I, that one always hurts me because I go back to the David Wilson days whenever, uh, he fumbled out of the gate and then Tom Coughlin basically just buried him. You know, he just basically like, we're done with you. We're never going to, you know, we're never going to try again. Then they did. And he got hurt. Uh, one last one. This is just sort of you know, top of mind here. Uh, you know, Alvin Kamara, I don't think we're really worried about him long-term, but Man, Taysom Hill got a lot of carries, or at least a lot more than I would have anticipated. I mean, is are we worried about Taysom Hill once again being the fly in the ointment in in New Orleans? Yeah, I'm not too worried about it. You know, Taysom's you know opportunities were pretty low. Like when you look at him, he was he had, he did handle 21 percent of the rushing attempts. To your point, like that's not insignificant, but it came from Mark Ingram. Mark, Mark Ingram only had 21 percent himself, so Camara was still around his typical. You know, uh, I say typical, but obviously we got it. You know. Two years ago, we had a really big rush share from him, but he's normally around the 50% mark. He had 47% of the rushing attempts uh, on Sunday. He was also dealing with a rib injury. Um, doesn't sound like it should be anything that holds him back, but it might have been bothering him a little bit in the game. So I'm, I'm not going to worry too much right around Taysom Hill. Uh, I feel pretty good about Kamara. My, my biggest concern with Kamara, man, honestly, is the 47% route participation. Like this is a guy that's normally around 60 to 65%, and we want, we want, his, re we want his receptions. And Jameis isn't targeting him as much either. So it's like, there's just a lot, and there's more uh, competition for the targets. My big concern with Kamara is like, hmm, are we looking at like maybe a 60 catch season? Maybe the days of the 90s are, are over. Like, that's my concern with Kamara. Yeah, you just wonder how much uh, how much Kamara, and I guess by extension, the rest of us are going to miss Drew Brees being there, uh, getting him all those targets. Because we know it didn't happen with Taysom Hill at quarterback, and at least through one week uh, this this week, it didn't seemed to happen uh, with Jameis Winston at quarterback. So, all right, here we go. Uh, we are through week one, Dwayne. We have learned maybe not everything there is to learn, but, uh, you know, we'll talk again later this week. I look forward to us uh, maybe trying to put in practice what we kind of learned this week, right? Because week two, it's just another opportunity for us to, to get better and get smarter, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll come back with all this and we'll be talking about, okay, what a, where do we got guys ranked for the week? You know, who are we starting? Who are we sitting? Yeah, it's, it's all about application after today, like you say, Marcus. Yeah, exactly. This is, a, this is the textbook portion of it. Then we, uh, we go to the actual, you know, kind of infield, uh, hands-on portion of the class when we get into next week. So that'll do it for this edition of the Fantasy Life Podcast. Again, thanks to KFC and thanks to all of you out there for listening. Be good, get smart, and we'll talk to you later in the week. Special thanks again to our presenting sponsor, Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's finger licking good. Feed your whole team and make everyone happy with easy meals from KFC. You can't go wrong with a 12-piece tender meal when it's game day and everyone's hungry. Family style that fits your style. That's finger licking good. Order now on the KFC app or at KFC.com.